Hi, Radical Therapist listeners. This is Chris Hoff uh, doing a little special episode today, um, just kind of out of the regular routine. Uh, earlier today, um, I did an Instagram live over at the Radical Therapist, well, no, actually, the Dr. Chris Hoff uh, Instagram, where I talked about my white identity. I used... Um, the Hardeman White Identity Development Model um, as a as a guide to share my experience of coming to understandings about my own white identity and the role of whiteness in the world, uh, my own racist attitudes, um, and how I've kind of moved through um, a lot of this. What you know that stuff. So. Um, so this episode is going to be that it's the audio of the Instagram live. It's me telling my story and it's, you know, truncated and short, but I think I hit a lot of the points about that relate to race in my, in my development. So, um, and kind of where I'm at now, what I'm trying to do. And, uh, so that's, what's going to be today's special episode. The world is very challenged right now. We had another unarmed black man killed by the police, and we had the incident um, with Christian Cooper in, in uh, Central Park, and uh, tensions are high. And I think it all comes down to, and I'll say this in the video, I just think it comes down to, as white people, um, we have a hard time identifying our own whiteness. And that's my hope, I think, with this this particular podcast, is to make it okay for people to share about their own white identity and um, maybe begin to own the role of whiteness in the world. So, um, so let's just get right to it. Um, all right. I'm going to, uh, I made a little announcement earlier on my Instagram stories that I was going to do uh, a Instagram live, my first one ever. I even got dressed up for the occasion. I hope you like that, but um, and what I thought I would do is, you know, I, like many people are, um, struggling with, you know, this week's events, uh, the event in Central Park, where we had another incident of kind of, you know, calling the cops on just being black and, and among other things, you know, and um, and also then a, another unarmed black person murdered by the police, and um, and uh, uh, yeah, and then just all that's transpired since then. Um, and um, as a white person, I'm trying to figure out what I can do, um, and uh, in this uh, in the contemporary times that we are living in, and so. One of the things I thought I could do was talk to other white people about um, uh, white identity. And the reason I think this is important is because, um, you know, I think we're having a hard time struggling with owning our whiteness, right? And and um, how that plays out in the world and the effects it has on people in the world. And, um, you know, I, off, you know, in the past I've been in um, like multicultural classes and where, you know, many of the white students would never even identify as white. They would be like, well, I'm Irish or um, I'm not white. I'm, you know, whatever, name the eth ethnicity or while benefiting from whiteness, but we'll get there. 
or I'm American. You know, I'd hear a lot of that and, you know, and the problematic statement of I don't see race and, um, and that's fine. And, and I, and I'm going to talk about that too, because I was there once too, right? I'm not, and I want to make sure that we're not, I hope I don't cast, um, blame or whatever, but I want to talk about how we develop through our white identity to a place where we can be really effective as anti-racist. So, um, and, you know, and, and it's not to knock being American or being Irish or uh, Italian or whatever you might be. Um, those principles that were born out of those cultures and the legacies that were passed through those cultures are very, very much important. But oftentimes it does not acknowledge our whiteness and the effects of our, our whiteness in the world and how we benefit from the whiteness and how we keep white supremacy going by not acknowledging our whiteness. So what I thought I would do today, and I'll try to, you know, be kind of quick, but um, uh, bear with me. But I'm going to go through the Hardeman White Identity Development Scale, which I've used in the past to kind of tell my own story of a white identity. And uh, it's a scale, Hardeman, H-A-R-D-I-M-A-N, if you want to look it up and maybe and maybe even lay your own experience on the developmental stages. And um, and for all the post, my post-structuralist friends that I'm using a, a stage, categorized stage for this, you can just take a backseat in the moment and, and let me do this. But um, uh, so the Hardeman stage starts with the na- not, I always such a hard, hard time with this word, na- na- naive stage, right? So, and uh, this is like the beginnings of our lives, you know, and for me, uh, you know, I was born into a sea of whiteness in uh, uh, Huntington Beach, uh, and I should let you know that I'll have questions. I'll, I'll make some space for questions at the end of this. So I saw that Natasha had a question what it was called. It's the Hardeman White Identity Development sta- Scale or Stage. Stages. Uh, but anyway, in the, in the uh, nativity stage, um, you know, uh, for me, it was I was born in the Huntington Beach. I was born in a sea of whiteness, right? And um, that what it says here is that this is the stage with um, – where we are born into this world, innocent, open, and unaware of racism and the importance of race, right? And so that was me being born and growing up in Huntington Beach. It was, like I said, a sea of whiteness. There was no no people of color that I recall because, because I, why I can remember it this way is because I remember the first time a Vietnamese student came to our school. I was in my elementary school, and that was the time, I'm going to date myself now, but that was the time of... Um, you know, the boat people, uh, as they were referred to, but it was a, a, a young Vietnamese student came to our school and it was quite a stir. Like we had this um, exotic person coming to our school. And um, and so that was my first experience of like a, a person in color and, and, and you know, and then did, did not think about um, – race at all in all of that right and or the effects of or what the what, what that experience might have been and then there was another uh um indian student um um that came in um and you know and then so there was this they were just being kind of assimilated right and we didn't think about uh or at least I wasn't thinking about the importance of race or what their experience might be coming to into this sea of whiteness, right? And so, um, so it could be characterized that I was very much unaware of race at that time, um, growing up in my elementary school years. So uh, the Hardeman scale then moves to the acceptance stage, and the acceptance stages. 
this is a stage where it's marked you're, it's marked by a conscious belief in the democratic ideal that everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed in a free society and those that fa- who fail must bear the responsibility of their failure so um, this, in a nutshell, is meritocracy. This is what we, at least in my where my location, what I was taught that um, that you know, if you work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, then the world is yours. And if for some reason you fail, that's a statement about your character, right, or who you are as a person. And embedded in all of that, and this still goes on today, right? And there's still a lot of people that subscribe to that that ideal and um but um what it what it doesn't contain is any larger um social awareness right so so this was when i i would probably rate myself around you know this was you know seventh or eighth grade my junior high school years you know um where i was kind of you know and i was really interested in you know six maybe people like john wayne or something you know i grew up with that giant john wayne ideal you know that you just be tough and you work hard and you'll be okay and it doesn't matter social context you know does not matter at all or whatever's going on or what rate or what race you are or whatever i had no no social awareness of any of that stuff. I bought into the American ideal. I was I was sold on meritocracy. If I work hard enough, um, I uh, I'll be okay. And so, so that's the second stage of the Hardman, uh, a white identity stage. So then we get to the interesting part, and then this is the what is known as the resistance stage. And the resistance stage in this uh, in the developmental the Hardman develop white identity development scale is the white person it starts with the white person's denial system begins to crumble because of a monumental event or a series of events that not only challenge but shatter the individual's denial system and it goes on to say racial realities of life in the United States can no longer be denied and how this happened for me was uh, I was probably. 14 or 15 years old and I was um drinking beers in the park with some friends and there was a guy I grew up with uh his name is Scott Miller he's dead now he was actually assassinated by his own gang but he ended up becoming the um co-founder of what is arguably the largest skinhead gang in the country now Peni public enemy number 1 and um, one day we were all in the park drinking beers and Scottish, who's just at that time was kind of when I was growing up with him, you know, blonde haired surfer kid, um, you know, just kind of prototypical Huntington Beach stereotype and um, which, you know, skinheads are prototypical Huntington Beach, prototypical stereotype at this point. But um, but he rolled up on his bike and we were all sitting there drinking beers and he, and he said, hey, you want to see my new tattoo? And, um, we, I was like, okay. And so he, what he did is he rolled up his sleeve and he showed me this like large black swastika that he tattooed. And he must've been same age as me, 14 or 15 years old at that time. Um, large black swastika on his arm. And I had seen that and I was like, that was, if I look back going on the scale, that was when something happened to me. Like when I realized like, oh, wait a minute. I know of like Nazis and I know of like from World War II and like playing army as a kid and they were the bad guys. And 
Um, but all of a sudden you had this white surfer kid with a swastika tattooed on his thing. And like I said, he went on to become quite notorious. Um, and, um, and yeah. And so it just kind of, that was the beginning of the stage that kind of opened things up for me. And then at that time too, in Huntington beach, there was quite a scandal because we had a former concentration camp guard living in Huntington beach that they had found out about. And so there was this kind of thing that started to happen that I began to realize it goes on to, um, the resistance stage, the final point in the resistance stage is the person becomes conscious of being white and is aware they harbor racist attitudes and begin to see the pervasiveness of oppression in our society. And I would mark that point, like I said, I would mark that point as the beginning of me um, entering into the experience of a white identity and see, beginning to see that there's this thing going on, that there's race, racism and stuff like that. And um, and, um, and that's just a, and that was a long period of years. Right. And so that was a long period of years. I had a counterbalance to that too. And I want to say this, I didn't grow up in what I remember as a racist home, right? I'm sure we had racist ideals, but the first black person I'd ever seen in my memory was in my own home. And it was my father's colleague friend. And I grew up with, a, with my father who taught at Cal State Long Beach, and he taught in the park and recs department. And a lot of these were kids that were going to go into inner cities and for nonprofit work and do that kind of thing. And he made everybody read the autobiography of Malcolm X, right? And this was in the 70s. So there wasn't a lot of the anti-racist literature that we have now. There was, you know, you know, James Baldwin and like books like that and stuff. But so I had this other counterbalance of my father. Like the N-word was never used in my home growing up. Um um, so there was this kind of thing, but, you know, but, but I did get, begin to experience like my own racism or, um, you know, how I would, or I would hear other people with their racism, you know, um, I've since come to learn a lot of the kids that I grew up with have, are, hold some pretty extreme ad, uh, ideals and ideas. And, um, uh, so yeah, so that was the beginning of this kind of stage. And, you know, and Huntington Beach has kind of been where I grew up is, uh, kind of, we just had these protests, you know, the open the state, you know, um, protests here, the alt-right, uh, folks have been coming here and, and doing their thing. And, um, and there's been a long history of kind of some racist undertones in the community that I live in. And when I, before I started my master's program to become a therapist, I served on, and I'll talk about this. This is, uh, uh, we'll get to the redefinition stage in a minute, but but I served on the Human Relations Task Force. And um, before I start, I had, to, I had to resign because I was going to grad school to become a therapist. And But one of the last things we were dealing with was um, white supremacists were putting flyers out on people's lawns in Huntington Beach. And um, so that thing is still in our community, right? Um, so anyway, so that was the resistance stage. This is where you get w woken up to where I got woken up to uh, my denial systems about race, um, my own racism, um, uh, my own seeing how people are oppressed. I grew up, you know, I, saw, I was here for the Rodney King, right? You know, the riots after the Rodney King um, incident and, you know, all of that stuff. And so. Um, so that's all part of the redefinition stage where it's kind of this struggle where this, like I said, this, the person no longer denies being white, 
um, oh, that's redefinition stage. So the person becomes conscious of being white, is aware that they harbor racist attitudes and begin to see the pervasiveness of oppression in our society. So, so then what happened next for me is then this is where in the Hardeman scale, this is where the redefinition, redefinition stage. Um, and this is stage is where the person no longer denies being white, honestly confronts one's racism, understands the concept of white privilege, and feels increased comfort in relating to persons of color. So, and how this happened for me, I, I'm going to mark it. I mean, I, like I said, I was served before I even started grad school, I was serving on the Human Relations Task Force at the city of Huntington Beach. I was trying to begin to do some things um, to um, acknowledge, you know, my whiteness in some ways or try to do something and make some change in the world. But, um, but how, what I would say was most fundamentally changing for me, it was, I started my master's program at Pepperdine university and I, and it's embarrassing to say in some ways I was in my forties, right? This is how long it took. I was in my forties. So don't be ashamed if you're just coming onto these ideals now. Right. Uh, but I was in my forties and I acquired a mentor. Fortunately, I acquired a mentor and I did it because I joined, I, so I got a flyer when I started at my, um, master's program I saw a flyer for something called the social justice collaborative and it really sounded interesting to me and it and i thought it would line up with some of the things that i was trying to do or be a part of or whatever and so i went to this uh the for the first meeting of the social justice collaborative and i met my what, what turned out to be my mentor at the time and still really is um dr amy tuttle at pepperdine university and she was a 10 years younger than me woman of color and um and um, became my mentor. And, and through that practice, I began to, um, you know, um, relate with persons of color more. I began to uh, honestly confront my own racism. Uh, I began to learn about white privilege and white fragility, which I'll talk a little bit about at the end here. And, um, and it, you know, when I went through all the things that we go through, like, well, I'm not a bad guy. You know, we do that kind of denial thing, like not all white people, right? Well, yeah, we know. It's, <laughs> but I did all that stuff, right? And I went, I, uh, I did all that stuff. And, um, but, um, but it was just a one, it was a wonderful, it still is. I mean, this is a learning that is in process, but it was, and sometimes you get really destabilized. I understand how, how you can move into positions of guilt or shame or denial because it's, you know, when confronted with uh, whiteness and and how that operates in the world and white supremacy. And it, it's easier sometimes, and we'll talk about this in White Fragility, just to turn away from it all because it is hard. And But it, it's not about you. It's about – and but you have to learn these things. And you have to see how it operates in the world. And it is an uncomfortable process. And I think that's probably why a lot of people don't want to – do it, but you can get through to the other side and you can continue to make stake, mistakes. And people have always been gracious with me. And, um, and, um, yeah. And so I know it's hard, but it has to be done. Our world depends upon it. So the final stage of, um, the Hardeman white identity scale is the internalization stage. And this is worth, this is where, with great, co greater comfort in understanding oneself, the development of what they say is a non-racist, I would say actually now you need to be an anti-racist, uh, the development of an anti-racist white identity comes a commitment to social action as well. And like I said, I've had you know, periods of social action in my life, and I, I, you know, so that's what's happened now. I have more comfort in my whiteness, who I am in the world, 
my interest in, uh, uh, um, you know, you know, trying to make change in the world, try to account for my own whiteness. Um, and, um, and that includes a commitment to social action and some of the ways that I'm doing that. And I, there's still a lot to do. And one of the things that this prompted this, and this is, this isn't it, but it, one of the things that prompted it is just that I, 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 um, I want to do more, you know, there's more, there's so much more work to do. And I know Anna just said, you know, we owe it to the people of color to do it because it's harder for them and more painful for them. And I'll, and I'll say something about that. Anna. thank you for that. Um, it's one time I did my first, uh, YouTube video on, and if you should go check it out, I did a white fragility, white privilege video, um, several, uh, a few years ago. And, uh, and when I started to get the comments, I started to get like very critical comments. People were, you know, um, you know, they're trolls, they come at you. And I remember thinking, oh, this YouTube thing, that's kind of crazy. I don't, um, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, you know, be part of that. And because of that, yeah, that hurt my feelings, right? Uh, that white fragility showed up, you know, and that hurt my feelings. These people hate me because I'm talking about white privilege and white fragility. And then I realized like, oh man, wait a minute, women, people of color, women of color, uh, the LGBTQ community, all of them have to put up this shit every day. So, uh, so it's not too tall in order for me to go take, you know, take my beating too. go out there and try to, uh, take my beating. So, um, uh, and thanks Anna for, or uh, Natasha for thinking it's a great video. And hi, Brian, good to see you. I'm going to, pro- I'm going to uh, promote our thing in a minute. So, um, uh, anyway, so the internalization stage is so with greater comfort, um, in understanding oneself and the development of an anti-racist white identity comes a commitment to social action as well. And Brian, who just kind of quoted on there, last year we did a thing. Well, he really did a thing. Uh, I want to pull it up. Where we, at California Family Institute, we uh, did a film uh, and a kind of discussion around um, what he titled Don't Fear Me, Respect Me. And we sh- did a showing of uh, When They See Us, the Netflix docuseries, which you all should watch if you have not seen it. And Brian and I are planning to do some sort of anti-racist uh, workshop at California Inst- uh, California Family Institute coming up. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, but let's talk a little bit about white fragility because I just did mention it and it is going to come up and it is going to hit you. And white fragility, you know, is this idea that white people in North America live in a social environment that protects and insulates them from race-based stress. And so w- what we are experiencing now with what's happening in Minnesota and what's happened this week in Central Park and the murder again of another unarmed black man is race-based stress. And it's really easy for us as white people to turn away from it. And that is white privilege and white fragility in action. And what I'm kind of asking is that we um, don't insulate ourselves from this, that we feel it. And this is, you know, me trying to feel it. And um, because it is easier for us as white people to turn away from it and um, not have to deal. Uh, And that's the truth. And, um, And that's white privilege. And so... Um, uh, what are some other things? Um, so what are some of the defensive moves if we're going to be white doing participating in white fragility, uh, is, um, you know, changing the subject, calling race talk negative, uh, leaving difficult conversations. I think this is the most prominent one, even on social media or whatever, we can disappear. 
Um, and so we need to be able to hang in um, with a little more tolerance about having sitting in difficult conversations, um, uh, getting defensive or angry. My life hasn't been easy. I remember I got a – and this is a common uh, – a quote I get, like on one of my videos, I got, well, you know, people make these judgments about me. They don't know what my life is like. My life hasn't been easy. Listen, my life hasn't been easy either. Um, I've struggled with, uh, in various ways. And, um, but, but the, but my white skin has not made my life, hasn't not made my life hard where, where that has done it for, um, but where race makes it r- real hard in our country. Uh, for other people. So, um, so, um, being white isn't the one thing. As a matter of fact, I remember I was a high school dropout. I remember when I learned about white privilege, I went back to a time where I got a job at a fortune 500 company. I put on a suit and tie. I was a high school dropout. Um, they'd heard about me because I'd had some success and they were kind of recruiting me from another company. But the thing is, is because I looked the part that they were looking for, and I know this in my core to the day, um, they didn't reference check me. They didn't check my education. I just looked the part. And I know I got that job at a Fortune 500 company where, you know, typically you would need a, um, like education, like a bachelor's degree at least or something like that. And it took and it made my f- professional life take off because I got that job. Would a person of color had that same experience? I 99% guarantee you that it would not. And because of my whiteness, I was able to do that. And I will stand by that. Um, but getting defensive or angry, my life hasn't been easy. That's a, that's another defensive move of white fragility. And of course, getting lost in white guilt. Uh, it isn't about blame or shame. This isn't about blame or shame. We, we Blame or shame is just going to like enable us inactive, right? And it's going to not help anybody. So this isn't about that. We need to as white people, we need to be out there. And so it's not about uh, guilt. I've never had a person of color uh, come up to me and tell me what, a, you know, whatever about who I was as a white, never. And I've, and as long as I've shown up and, and, and not centered myself and tried to help and be a listener and do those kinds of things, all is well. And, and as a matter of fact, when I've made mistakes and I've made mistakes and have been called on them by people of color, um, Brian knows of one specifically, uh, another colleague of ours, um, you know, um, where I made a mistake in a group of people and, uh, she took me aside and called me on it and she was just gracious in the whole thing. And, and it wasn't about shaming me or producing guilt or anything like that. It was just about helping me be a better person and that's all it is. So, um, okay. And, uh, so, um, yeah, so that's it. I, I, like I said, um, I have some video on white privilege and white fragility on YouTube. You have to look for the radical therapist on YouTube and it's up there. And, um, but, um, does anybody have any quick questions before I close out? I've been going almost uh, half an hour. I don't know how long you're supposed to go on these things, but that was my story in a nutshell, uh, according to the Hardeman white identity um, development uh, model. And I would ask that maybe you guys Google the white Hardeman white identity development model and kind of lay your own life experience on that and see where you're at in the process or where you need to be. Um, and also um, maybe read, there's a ton of literature to read. I'm thinking of Robin DiAngelo's white fragility, since we just talked about that. And that's where I took most of this stuff from anyway. 
And of course, um, the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, I think it's Ibram Zendi. Um, but um, yeah, so, but there's a lot, ton of literature on your social media. You're seeing a lot of stuff you can read and, or just shoot me an email and I can give you some suggestions as well. Any quick questions? Was this helpful? Can you give me a thumbs up if it was uh, useful, well, <laughs> worthwhile? Yeah, thanks. Um, okay, I'm waiting to see if there's any more questions. I'm going to close this off. And what I'm going to do um, – thanks, Carrie. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to save this, um, I'm, and then I'm going to um, – if you think it would be helpful for other people, please share it. Um, or maybe we'll do more of these and we can keep the conversation going. And um, that would be great. So I'm going to save it. Please watch it again. Share it with somebody. Hi, Justine. And Talia, good to see you. And uh, yeah, and we'll be, yeah, that's it. So thank you, everybody. Uh, show up. Um do your do your work. Uh, don't let white fragility get you. Um, and we'll keep the convo going. Yes, yes, Michelle, we'll keep the convo going. And maybe I'll do more of these. This was fun. This was kind of cool. I was a little nervous in the beginning. I've never done a live thing before, but this was kind of fun. So, uh, and look out for Brian. Uh, Brian dot the therapist dot. He's on here right now. Go like him. Uh, he, he and I are going to be doing an anti-racist workshop of some kind at California Family Institute. And, uh, yeah, so we'll be spreading the word. And if you see that pop up somewhere, please spread the word and even join us. It's going to be, like I said, no blame, shame, no guilt. We're going to have – might be some difficult conversations for sure, uh, but that's what we need to do. So, okay. Thank you, everybody. Uh, it will be replayable. Please watch it again, and we'll chat at you later. Bye. Okay, that, that was it. Thanks for listening. This is Radical Therapist. We'll get back to our regular, regularly scheduled. Shoot me an email if you found this helpful. Um, Chris Hoff, MFT at gmail.com or at the Radical Therapist at gmail.com. Uh, I'd be happy to hear from you if you found all of this helpful. And um, please continue, white people, please continue to do the work. Thanks for listening.